Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. wonder who they are. They say a bunch of things. They say marriage between a man and a woman is not important anymore. That's kind of relative. They say that um, you and I who are together here this morning in church, um, hearing God's word, sharing together in worship, are we're a bunch of radicals. I mean, we're just out there. We're way over the edge. Um, they, they say things like um, grades, scores don't matter anymore. And they say things like the, 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 the unit of the family is, is, they say things like truth is negotiable and, and it's relative. And it's, it's as, as we've said earlier in other weeks, kind of made up on the fly, sometimes depending on the situation. And Jesus addresses the they-sayers in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we looked at that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 5, 5, 6, and 7 here for these next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. He says, you've heard it said to the people, verse 21, you've heard it said to the people long ago. You've heard that it was said, verse 27. It has been said, verse 31. We're going to look more today. Again, you've heard it the people long ago say. In other words, they say, and then he turns each one of these teachings, each one of these snippets into saying, but I say. And there's a great, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Newsies or not, but there's a great line in the film Newsies where these kids are trying to figure out if they're going on strike or not. And one of the older, older boys that's carrying the paper says to young, one of the young kids, what do you say we do? And the younger kid looks at the older kid and he says, I say that what you say is what I say. <laughs> and that's really how we need to adapt Scripture. We need to look at what he says and say, I say that what he says is what I say. That's my opinion. My opinion is his opinion. What does he say about it? If he's got something to say about it, that ought to be my opinion about it. And so it's kind of with those thoughts of, of he said, she said, they say, I say, that we enter this, this text today. So follow along with me, if you will, picking up in verse 33 and, and reading on. Again, you have heard it said, to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your, uh, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that they may be children of the Father in heaven. 
He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in these three snippets, he's, we're going to glean several things, hopefully, from, from this teaching today. But he first of all talks about, in this, in this idea of keeping oaths, a person of integrity. And I think he's saying at least two things here beyond that. But first, he's saying a person of integrity has no need to swear or promise. And that's what basically he means by swear. A swear is a stern promise based on something. I swear by such and such that I will promise to say this or do this or go there or, or not. Let's look at verses 34 and 35 again. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, by the earth, for it's its footstool, by Jerusalem, by the city of the great king, do not swear by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black. In essence, he's saying all these things are controlled by God. Jerusalem, the turning of your, the, the white turning of your hair, uh, the, the, the heaven itself, the earth itself, all these things are controlled by him. And he's saying if we're going to swear on something, which we shouldn't do at all, shouldn't we swear on something that is, that is solid, some, something that is of him? Now, here's what's often true, and I think why, he's, why he lays this truth out here. He says, don't, there's no need for that at all. A person of integrity has no need to swear by anything, in essence, he's saying. And here's what's, here's what's usually altogether true about that, and that's this. A person who needs to swear a lot and who needs to promise a lot usually, usually not always, but usually has broken a lot of those swears and a lot of those promises. That's why they're always saying, well, I swear. And they need, feel like they need to do that because their, their integrity is called into question. And it's called into question because they've not kept their word before. And he's saying your word ought to be your bond. That's, that's our, next, uh, our next point here in this person of integrity. His word is his bond. What he says is true. That's why he says, let yes be yes, let no be no. Some, another translation says, let, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. When you say it, in essence, mean it. If you don't mean it, don't say it. Yes and no is good enough rather than I swear on the word of God or I swear on my mama's grave or I swear on whatever else you've heard people swear on. He's saying that's totally unnecessary and a person of integrity don't need to swear at all. Don't need to make a promise or an oath at all, he says, because your yes should be good enough or your no should be good enough. Um, if we have broken promises, if we have broken these, these swears, as you will, as he, as he puts it here, they can't be won back as easily as saying, I swear or I promise. Just as it took a while for us to earn integrity, it takes a while for us to earn it back once we've lost it. In so many relationships, especially marriage relationships, but friend, relationships of friends, coworkers, what have you, when integrity is lost and someone's word has been violated or doesn't it depend on the individual and your track record with them, doesn't it take a while for them to earn that back with you? And you with them probably as well. And rightfully so. Because here's what's, once trust is breached, and I've done a good bit of marriage counseling with people over the years, and trust is a key issue in marriage. Once trust is breached, it takes a while to earn it back. Now, all of us want to do these three things, bam, 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 we'll check it off, and the trust is back in there, and I'm back in solid again. That's not the way it works. Mileage has to occur. I mean, some track record has to occur. There has to be some sense of, let me see your walk. I hear your talk. <laughs> But let me see your walk. 
Is this real with you? Is this something that you live by or is this something you're talking about? So in essence, he's saying here, your word ought to be good enough. Yes, ought to be good enough. No, ought to be good enough. Not, I swear on my mom's grave or on the Bible or on whatever. And, the, and we do when we go to court and it's not evil or anything like that. I'm not trying to paint that picture, but he's saying a person of integrity shouldn't need to swear at all. A person of integrity, their integrity should follow them, should be known by others about them, and their word should be enough. Their word should be their bond. Secondly, he starts talking about revenge, and I've, I've titled this, he started it because that's, that's this whole idea of, of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. First of all, what I want us to see here is, is that revenge is, is man-made, and that's what he speaks to here. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the left. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If anyone wants to sue you over your shirt, give him your coat. In other words, go the extra mile. Revenge, he's saying here, is man-made. In fact, he says in Romans 12, revenge is mine. Paul's talking to the Roman church. He says, the Lord says, revenge is mine. I'll repay. I know this person better than you do. I know their motives. I know their heart. I know what makes them, makes them tick. I know what pushes them, pushes the envelope with them and what doesn't. I know them better than you do. I created them. I knew them in the womb. I know what gets their attention more than you do. I know how to get revenge on them, how to avenge the wrong better than you do because I see to their heart. You don't. You can just see the behavior. You can see the evidence of their behavior. I see to their heart. I see to their motive. I see to the why behind what they do. He says, it's my job to avenge, not yours. Revenge is never, and, and, and quite honestly, has that ever worked out for you? <laughs> I mean, if you've sought revenge on somebody, has it ever, has it ever worked out favorably? Has everybody come together for a group hug afterwards? Usually not. It usually drives a deeper wedge than there was in the first place. And he's saying that's a total waste of time. He's saying you've heard it said to go get the revenge. Somebody takes your eye, you take their eye. You take their tooth, you take their tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek to them. Give them beyond what they're they're asking for, even to the point of he's saying here at at the end of this passage, into this section, if they even want to borrow from you, Loan to them. He said that, that revenge is, is a total waste of time and is, it's, it's, um, it's seeking victory where we've already won it. And that's really what revenge is about. It's really more or less, isn't it? It's about winning. Revenge is about winning and being right and, 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 and knowing, yeah, I'm, I've got the upper hand here. And for you and I as believers, winning and losing ought to take a different perspective than it does with the world. Here's why. You and I as believers should know and know that we've already won where it matters. We've won where it matters. The victory's already been won. Our eternity's taken care of. Even our here and now is taken care of as we walk with him. And so those battles, those victories have been won already by us. Why are we seeking to win again in a relationship? Why are we seeking to win an argument again in a relationship or win the upper hand in a relationship? He's saying, in essence, you've already won. Revenge is mine. I'll take care of that. I know them better than you do. I know their heart. I know their motive. Um, last, or not last week, but a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea of the, the temptations of, that, that come our way. And he's saying if your eye caused you to stumble, to pluck it out. If, you're, if your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off, and all those kinds of things. In essence, we, were, we, we pointed out that he's saying remove yourself from that situation. Great counsel here, too, to go back up a few verses and look at what he's talking about there to say, if you're tempted to revenge, to, to, to seek revenge, if you're tempted to, let, to, to get the upper hand so that you're, you win ultimately, remove yourself from that situation where you're tempted to get revenge. Um, it's, that's great counsel for us in his word because 
in the heat of those moments, aren't we tempted to say, well, I'm going to, you know, and, and whether it's in the moment or whether it's down the road, a month, a week, a year, whatever, we're going to get them back. And we carry that around, and it, it amazes me how long people carry garbage around and revenge around for years and even into decades and sometimes even into generations. They pass their, their animosity for this person and on to their kids, and their kids have the same animosity for the same family, the same individual, the same company, the same brand, the same. You, you fill in the blank. And that animosity carries over and over and over again. And when he says, you've already won, <laughs> Why are you trying to win again? Why are you trying to win where it doesn't matter? You've won where it matters. If we'll see that picture, I think um, succumbing to revenge is a far easier battle to win. Secondly, um, followers are to live, or followers' lives, rather, are to be about others. Um, Look at what he says here in verse 39. If he... If he wants to sue you over your shirt, hand over your coat as well in verse 40 or 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one even who wants to borrow from you. Um, The greatest picture of this attitude, in in essence, going beyond what what is deserved, going beyond what is, even if we feel like we've been wrong, we're the one that's been put upon. We're the one that's been hurt. We're the one... I'm to give back to that individual that's hurt me, that's wronged me. That's what he says here. He says, go even, go even the extra mile with him. There's no better picture of that than this. Who in this room deserves Jesus to be beaten on your behalf, deserves for him to be accused and spat upon on your behalf, deserves for him to, to carry a cross down the Via Dolorosa to Golgotha, be slammed in the ground and on your behalf? Who deserves that less than he? Great picture of that, of him going the extra mile beyond what he deserved, beyond what we deserve and saying, I'll take that for them and I'll take even more for them and I'll take even more for them and even more for them. That's a hard thing to do in, in our world, isn't it? In the relationships that you and I have and sometimes in, in, even in families, that's hard to do of not seeking revenge and, 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 and our life being about more of ourselves than others. And that's really what the core of his teaching here gets to. He said, life is bigger than you. I mean, it's not about you. It's not about your winning. It's not about your being right. It's not about your being up on a pedestal. It's not about looking at you and saying, oh, they got it all. He said, it's not about you. Your life is not about you. So, in essence, he's saying here, focus on others. Give beyond where it's expected of you, to where it's not expected of you. He said, the example that I've given you is um, of, his, of his hanging on a cross and his carrying the, the cross and going, to the, going the extra mile for us is a great example of that. Okay, you've got nothing. Sorry, you have to take my word for it. Oh, did this go off? Oh, well, technology is great when it works. I'm going to seek revenge on that uh, projector in a minute. Um, yeah. Um, but he's, he's saying, what a futile thing that is. What a futile thing to seek revenge. It's a fleeting thing. You can win for the moment, he's saying in this teaching, but in a lasting way you lose. 
when you've already won, when you realize though you've already won, revenge becomes less of a motive and you see it for what it is. Now, I think he takes a, a, a clear shift here. And one, one of these bills on the other, we're going to see that in just a minute. But he takes a clear shift here in going beyond revenge to say, love your enemies. Love when it's hard. Love when it's difficult. Go beyond loving when it's convenient. And here's what he says, that love starts, verse 44, with prayer. Uh, I tell you, love your enemies, and verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are out to get you. Pray for those who want to annihilate you. Pray for those who speak evil about you. Pray for those who are coming to get you and um, whose, whose aim it is to kill your reputation, to, 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 to besmirch your name, to, to, to make you angry, whatever their motive is. Um, and why does he tell us to pray for those folks? Here's why. And this is probably reality for each of us. None of us have the capacity to do that on our own. None of, none, none of us have the capacity to love the unlovable on our own. It's just impossible to do. We can't humanly do that apart from him. That's why prayer is such an important vehicle. In fact, he, not only should, should we begin with prayer, but prayer should sustain our ability to love people. We can't love the unlovable apart from praying for them. We can't love the unlovable apart from asking God to give us the strength to do that on our, in, in and of ourselves because we don't have the, the capacity to do that. Um, loving well starts with prayer, and, and as I said, it's sustained by prayer. Secondly, though, it becomes easier with practice. Look at verse 46 and 7. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? He's saying even, even the, what you think of the, are the scum of society, these folks love folks who love them. These folks speak to the folks who speak to them. He's saying if we, can, if we cannot go beyond their ability, we cannot go beyond the ability of people who are totally unlovable and don't care if they're loved to love. What is said of us, of our witness? What, is, what kind of reputation do we have in our culture, in the marketplace, among our friends, among our family? He's saying if we can't go the extra mile to love someone who's hard to love, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I, if I ask for a show of hands, I guarantee you every person in this room would raise their hand and say, I know somebody that's hard to love maybe in my own house or certainly where I work. or whatever. Everybody knows somebody that's hard to love. He's saying those are the very folks that we need to go after and learn to love better. We can't do that apart from prayer. We can't do that apart from some practice. The practice is what sustains our ability to do that. And, as, and, and, and it does, it's like anything else, with practice it gets easier. My expression of love, my expression, whether that's a, whether that's a gift at, a, at, a, at an event or whatever or a birthday, but that's something unexpected that I give them, that I, that I say to them, uh, a card or whatever, it doesn't matter, a, a word of encouragement when they've never heard it from us. When we, when we love the unlovable, those that are hard to love, we go the extra mile, we give beyond what's expected of us in those relationships to show love. He's saying it gets easier with practice. The more we do it, the easier it gets, not only with them but with others around us that are hard to love. Um, We've got, in order for that to happen, we've got to see them through a different lens. Because here's our problem. They're not like us. And most of us don't love people that aren't like us. Most of us don't pursue people who aren't like us. We, we go after relationships and friendships and, 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 and even in social settings beyond church to find people like us, that think like us, that live like us, that believe like us, that, that have, the, have 
family relationships like us, that have values like us. We, f- we try and find people like us. The problem with that is this. We're only around people like us. If we're only around people like us, there is never any, any, any sense of practice to love somebody beyond somebody. We're loving ourselves, in essence, is what I'm trying to say. If we just find people like us, we're in love with us, not with them. And so he says, if you find people to love that aren't like you, that don't look like tax collectors, people you would not hang out with, if you find people to love that are like this and love them, it'll be far easier to love others that are hard to love. Look for someone that is hard that you wouldn't normally hang out with, that you would normally do life with, and learn, he says, to love them. In doing so, your love quotient will grow, not only in those relationships with that individual, but beyond that, with your family, with extended relationships that you have. Your witness of, of loving well will grow beyond you. Is that easy? <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, it's really hard to do for most of us. Um, but it's a, there, there is great reward in learning to love well. Um, and really, what do you want said over you when somebody like me stands over your, the casket and, and, and tries to think of something godly in your life to bring up to others? Do you want said of you that, boy, they, they, um, they took care of their stuff really well? They were insured well, and they made sure their family was provided for, and nothing wrong with any of that. Well, would you would you rather that be said of you or, man, they loved people. They loved people. They they showed love to people. People knew that around them. When they walked into a room, people were glad they were they were there because they they felt included. They felt wanted. They felt needed. They felt loved. What do you want said of you? He's saying here, of more value than anything else is our ability to love the unlovable. Our ability to love when it's hard, when it's difficult, through some adversity, through some trial, through some pain, even and hurt. We feel like we, we've been the one that's been put upon, as I said earlier. Um, thirdly, though, and finally, under loving when it's hard, loving when it's hard ends in perfection. Look at what he says in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, anytime you see the word perfect in Scripture, well, never say never and always. Most of the time, you see the word perfect in Scripture, 99% of the time. It's referring to this idea of being complete, lacking nothing. In essence, to the fullest, in fullness. So when he talks about perfe- perfection, he's, he's not talking necessarily about sinlessness. Uh, there, there are times when he's talking about that in Scripture. It's usually prophetic in nature about heaven. But when he's talking about perfect in, in, in this world and in this life, he's talking about completeness, fullness, lacking nothing. And he says that's the kind of love that we need to love with. A, a complete love, a perfect love, a love that's lacking nothing, a love that's unconditional, a love that, in essence, looks just like him, looks like his love, um, a love that doesn't hold back. And, and in fact, some great parallel scripture here is, is to go read First Corinthians thirteen, but a love that doesn't hold—excuse <coughs> me—that doesn't hold back, that doesn't res- hold hold on reserve. If you, then I'll. He said, "That's not love." Love that's complete and love that's full gives beyond where it's givable, loves beyond where it's lovable, goes beyond where it's expected every time, 10 times out of 10. It's selfless. It's, it's as I said, it looks like the cross. It looks like him. It looks like his beating for us. It looks like his accusal for us. It looks like his death for us. It looks like all those things that 
we deserve, that you and I deserve, our sin deserved, he was totally sinless and went through all of that for, for us and did so selflessly and continues amazingly beyond the cross to love us that same way today. Continues to love us beyond what we deserve, to, continues to love us beyond our sin, beyond our disobedience, beyond our selfishness, beyond our consumption with our own life and our own world and our own wants. Loves us beyond that. Only God can do that. Now he's saying here that that's the kind of love I expect out of those who follow me. That's the kind of behavior I expect out of those who follow me. And and there is no there is no accident to this sequence here of of a person of integrity and our seeking revenge and our learning to love well. He's put these just as a master teacher would in perfect sequence to say this. A person of spiritual integrity and hopefully cultural integrity too. But a person of spiritual integrity will never seek revenge, but love instead. A person of spiritual integrity will never seek revenge, but instead they'll show love instead of revenge. How is our integrity meshing up? How is it meshing? How is it matching this description? In essence, I guess the, the, the question comes, do, can we, do we look like that? Can that be said of us? Are we, are we such that the fragrance we, we leave in a room, the fragrance we leave after a conversation is, man, that person cares about people. I, I, there's no question at all that they care about people, that they love people, that, they're, that that is their, they have no personal agenda. There's no angle that they're playing because of this relationship. They're not trying to get closer into, into friendship with me so they can get from me what they want. They just love. They just care about people. They just want to be around them. They, they're, they're drawn to find a way to love other people. Um, a person of integrity, he says, doesn't do that. They don't, they don't, they're not focused on themselves. They're focused on others. A person who seeks revenge can't do that. Why? Because we're focused on winning. We're focused on being right. And a person who doesn't love well can't find that either because we're, again, focused on our own self. And we can't be focused on ourself and please him. We can't be focused on ourselves and love like him, love selflessly. Um, they, whoever they are, they look at us for those kinds of things. They look at us and say, as I said earlier, weak bunch of Christians, radicals, need a crutch, need something to hang on to. That's why they're all in church this morning. But in the back of their mind, they are looking to us to say, is there anything different about them than me? Do they treat people the same way I treat people? Do they love people the same way I Do they love any better than me? Do they, do they make decisions any better than me? Do they have any more integrity than me? Do they seek revenge as much as I do? Do they look pretty much like me, or is there anything different? And it should be said of us, there's much different about us. We love drastically different than the world loves. We love not based on an agenda, based on what we can get out of it, but because he commands us to and because he models it for us, because he loves us well, we love others well. Um, He's saying in this passage, in essence, to be brief, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Get over seeking revenge. Get over loving conditionally if they love me back. Get over ourselves. Our culture is consumed with ourselves and feeds that. I mean, every every commercial you see, every ad you see, every 
is about our own betterment, our own satisfaction, our own gratification, our own satisfaction, whatever. You fill in the blank of whatever makes you feel better about yourself. And our culture feeds that. Our, our, our consumer culture feeds that. And we've become consumers as Christians to think that, man, I deserve a little bit of that, don't I? I mean, isn't that what life's about, about my being blessed because I walk with, try to walk with God and be in church? And, and he's saying in this passage, get over yourself. Isn't it, it isn't about, life isn't about you. Never was never intended to be. It's about other folks. My life was about you, and your life should be about others, he's saying to us. Uh, boy, that's a hard pill to swallow in a, in a self-consumed culture that you and I live in. But if, if the world doesn't see it from us, where are they going to see it? If they didn't see how to love from us, where are they going to see it? If they didn't see how to, how to give and not seek revenge, how to, how to wash the slate clean with people and forgive, if they didn't see it from us, where are they going to see it? They need drastically to see it from us. Do they? Are they? Probably if you're like most, you'd say, well, sometimes, but not often enough. So how do I walk there? He says it's impossible apart from prayer. It's impossible to forgive apart from prayer. It's impossible to love apart from prayer. We, we need to seek him because we don't have the capabilities, I said earlier, to do that on ourselves. And, and they are looking to see if we do. <laughs> They're looking to see if we got it together. And, and we don't have it together. But we know more how to live. We should know more based on what he tells us in his word. Um, he's saying, they say this, but I say this. Who are we going to listen to? I hope this morning we can look to him and say, I say that what you say is what I say. That's what I believe. That's what I, how I want to live. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.